0: GitLab is a company that builds an open source platform for managing Git repositories. GitLab was started in 2012, and it has grown to have a large enterprise business with additional products such as continuous integration and security tooling. GitLab is also known for building a large, entirely remote workforce. GitLab does not have any offices, and the employees mostly communicate through Slack, email, and GitLab itself. Marin Yonkovsky was the first full-time engineer to join GitLab shortly after the company was started. Marin joins the show to talk about the very early days of GitLab and the evolution of the remote culture and how product development works at GitLab today. GitLab is one of the fastest-growing software companies, and this show was a great exploration of why that is. It explains some of the philosophies behind the company and how operations work. It's a great episode and there's also some discussion of the public spotlight that GitLab is in and the impact of being in the public spotlight. We had some discussion of the controversy and the debates around the somewhat political issues that GitLab has found itself in on the internet. These were not big issues, but they received a lot of publicity. ...because GitLab is growing so fast and it has had to reckon with some of these difficult decisions... ...that any fast-growing software company has to make. Speaking of remote work, we are hiring for two roles... ...a content writer and an operations lead. If you like to write about software engineering and study software engineering... ...this could be a great role for you. The content writer, that is. And separately, if you're looking to understand how a business works or specifically a software engineering podcast business, then the operations lead role might be for you. These are both part-time positions, working closely with myself and with Erica. And if you're interested, send me an email at jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Marin Jankowski, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, thank you for having me. You joined GitLab in 2012. Describe... Correct. The company when you joined? What was GitLab like
1: back in 2012? It is very simple to explain, actually. The company got formed in August 2012, and I was working with Sid, the current CEO, uh, in his previous startup. And the company was, well, almost non-existent because (laughs) one day Sid called me and said, hey, I have a great idea. I think it's a great idea. Want to join? And I was thinking, why not? Because one startup or the other startup, does it really matter, right? (laughs) The idea was actually really interesting. The first thing I told him, though, was, you do know you're going against GitHub, right? Like, it's two of us here. And he's like, right, yes, but we are going to build a better tool. So that was enough, actually, and it has been a wild ride since then. That sounds like Sid. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you know, people who don't know, can
0: go back and listen to we did an interview with Sid and I was definitely struck by his personality. He's one of a kind, I will say that. Like he's very ambitious but very soft spoken. What is it about Sid's personality that makes him a good CEO? He
1: knows how to say sorry a lot, actually. As I told you uh, when as an intro to this conversation, he is very opinionated and he has a vision of how things need to be. What makes him an amazing CEO, though, is when you confront him, he is willing to listen. He is not strong-headed when it doesn't matter, which a lot of people actually make that mistake, right? Like they allow ego to drive them. He doesn't seem to have much of that, actually. So the first three months of us working together prior to GitLab were extremely rough for both of us. We come from different cultures. We come from different, completely different bra- uh, backgrounds, upbringing, and so on. And the first three months were both of us like just clashing constantly. And we did not see the end to that. At some point, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, you know, this is making you miserable, right? Like you are constantly upset. You are constantly saying that you're not sure whether you want to work on this anymore. (laughs) But you're not taking an action. What's happening there? And I didn't know it at that time, but Sid apparently, Sid's uh, now wife, uh, said something similar to him. So at some point, I kind of threw my hands up in the air and said, you know, I tried my way and it hasn't worked. I'm just going to like try to be open about it and say hey, I don't think this is actually working. I'm pretty miserable with our collaboration. And I think that kind of opened the door for us because we had a really long, frank conversation, very direct, kind of extracted. I think both of us kind of threw our hands up in the air and said, you know, let's see what we can make out of this. And that set a completely different path for us, completely different path, because we kind of started trusting each other and believing that the other person is going to do what's best. And then when the other person doesn't, you just approach them and confront them and say, hey, directness, I'm going to be perfectly frank for you, no putting a, you know, like a red bow on it. And since then, knock on wood, it has been amazing journey. So you both changed at that time? I for sure has have. I think Sid also changed as well. And then some of our core values were born out of those conversations, The like trial, trial and error, transparency, iteration, all of that has been born out of our initial co- collaboration there. So I didn't know how to, I didn't even know the meaning of the word iteration. I was an engineer at that time. And the only thing I wanted to build was a perfect solution. Mm-hmm. He was more of a, He was an engineer as well, but he was more business-oriented. And the only thing he wanted to do is beat the market. So together, we kind of learned how to do this uh, step-by-step and hit the market faster. And uh, iteration is now ingrained in GitLab. Beating the market. So
0: conversation with Sid, I do sense a fierce competitive streak to him. He's a soft-spoken, quiet fierce competitor, you could tell. Why is that useful? Isn't it better to be positive some? I mean, Bezos is always saying we don't think about competitors. Why should you be thinking at all in competitive terms? Why do you want to beat the market? Why don't you want to just redefine the market?
1: Well, at that time, I'm going to remind you 2012, we were going against GitHub, a tiny startup, of two people going against a mammoth company. So at that time, it was important for us to ship fast, ship very fast. At this stage of the company though, I think we are big enough that uh, we are starting to set trends. I don't know whether we can be called trendsetters, but we are doing certain things that are definitely not in line what the market does. Like 2015, when we merged our CI into our main product, no one thought that was a good idea, including Sid, he didn't uh, also believe this was a good move but an engineer at that time in the co- uh, that was in the company said well the fact that the market says this doesn't mean it's the best possible solution for us so how about we try and do this this way so things change as you grow obviously right as 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 you Start being like more positioned, but like one of the other bets that we made was betting on Kubernetes when it was not at all clear that Kubernetes is gonna be the winner in this container platform war, right? So I vividly remember Sid coming back super excited when he read the the Kubernetes announcement, saying, "We need to watch this. This something is gonna happen here," mm. and he has been watching that ever since and. I think back in 2016, maybe beginning of 2017, he said like this is a done deal even though the market was not saying that. So he has this streak of vision in him. He's he's able to carefully study things.
0: Okay, so you guys were the first two people in GitLab I thought there was, didn't, were you the guy who started GitLab? Like, who was the one who started the open source project?
1: The open source project was started by Dimitri. He is uh, from Ukraine. So he started in uh, 2011 when he created the project. But he joined the company at the beginning of 2013. So when I say we, I mean, Sid and I, we worked together on contributing back to GitLab, trying to stand up GitLab.com as a SaaS offering at that time. And Sid reached out to Dimitri, asking him, or rather telling him, hey, I'm going to use your open source project. I'm going to try to make uh, money out of it. And Dimitri was receptive to that and said, good luck. And over time, over six months, actually, we kind of built a relationship with, uh, with Dimitri through contributing to GitLab as the open source project. To finally have Dimitri tweet the famous tweet, I would love to work on GitLab full time. And at that point, Sid reached out to him and they worked out a deal that made uh, Dimitri join in January as a co founder. 2012
0: was pre Slack, the early days of GitLab. Now, that said, I guess you were a two person company. So, remote, like remote team of two people
1: is not too tight. Are we living close to him? Were you guys- no, not at all. So Sid was living in the Netherlands, I was living in Serbia, Serbia is my country of origin, and we used Skype.
0: Oh yeah, that's a great one. Great, great co-working tool.
1: (laughs) Can you remember how that looked? Yeah, we screen shared. It actually does the
0: trick, right? You can have multi, you can have like three-person chats and four-person chats and, you know, multiple-person
1: group calls. I guess that does most of what you need out of a group. Two people, three people, it worked. Yeah. Uh, Dimitri joined, then we switched to Hangouts. Remember Hangouts? Of course, <laughs> I still use it, yeah. occasionally. One yeah. of my friends started messaging me on Hangouts again. I'm
0: like, come on, man, Like, not Hangouts. <laughs> I got enough channels. Yes. Nobody uses this anymore. Uh, well, some people do. I guess when the company really... Was scaling, by then, did you have Slack? Or w- what was the uh, the remote team management
1: story? We switched a lot of options over a period of time. We were on Campfire, we were on HipChat, remember HipChat? Of course. <laughs> we were on HipChat as well. Slack came, I think, very late into this story end of or mid 2014 actually like if not end of 2014 at that point we were already i think five or six people and slack was the new kid on the block and we were like okay let's let's give it a go at that time i think they were i don't know if they offer still free plan so yeah the tooling we used at that time was google docs skype and hangouts and we went through uh, multiple chat uh, options so slack was only 2014 15
0: Do you feel like there are gaps in the tooling today for remote team management?
1: That's an interesting question because I've been thinking about that uh, very recently. I don't necessarily think there is a gap in tooling. It is the gap in how this technology is not mimicking the standard human behavior. What I actually mean is Zoom is an amazing tool. We use it exclusively now for our communication. What is missing in technology at the moment is that natural uh, conversation between multiple he- people that can happen while you're standing in the same group. right? Like when you're talking in Zoom, you o- always have one conversation when you're in a group in real life, you can have multiple conversations at the same time. So that is actually missing everything else. I think we are well equipped to uh, lead a company, and GitLab is proving it uh, that it's possible to do. Just that human aspect of having multiple conversations within one larger conversation is what I think is currently missing. Have you tried that
0: thing, Tandem? The co located, uh, or it's like a virtual, basically, it's like a video chat room that's there all the time? I have not. I, I have no. tried it yet. I just heard about it. Explain how GitLab makes money today.
1: So majority of our income comes from our enterprise offering. We have an enterprise edition with multiple tiers. That enterprise edition, well, depending on the size of your company or the needs of your company has more or less attractiveness. Like, for example, our starter offering is, has some additional features compared to community edition but the main draw for it is support that we offer for our customers and then the ultimate one which is the most expensive plan we have is definitely geared towards more developed enterprises that need end-to-end solution like for security for cicd and various other things we also do have gitlab.com our sas offering that has comparable tiers as well so gitlab.com is free for majority of users but you can still purchase a plan that will unlock certain features for you so gold plan for example will offer you epics and issue boards and so on and so on so but that is a smaller chunk of our uh, revenue definitely enterprise self managed is where we get most of our money from has it
0: turned out that you are competing with github or did it turn out that you expanded the market or found new areas of the market that GitHub was not even exploring?
1: At the moment, we started thinking about CI and started building our CI tool and then integrating into our product. This is where the chain, the story changed for us. Up until that moment, it was Bitbucket, Atlassian, GitHub and us as uh, source code management tools. When we integrated uh, CI tightly in- inside of GitLab, the story changed for us. We started marketing ourselves as complete solution for uh, not only source control management but also for deploying, for testing, and so on. And I think uh, that is the point where we started, let's call it sprinting instead of walking, when it comes to that uh, race with GitHub and Atlassian.
0: And that was because, as it turned out. There were many people who wanted to move into CI/CD. They had trouble figuring out how to integrate everything together Correct. or spent m- much time
1: integrating things together to make it work.
0: Right, like taking CircleCI off the shelf and figuring out how this thing, how this puzzle piece fits into GitHub. That was more work than just going with GitLab which comes out of the box right. fully integrated with CI/CD. Right so the controversial decision to integrate CI/CD ended up being the
1: windfall decision correct correct and then at certain point when we started talking with uh, gymnasium so security scanning and so on same let's call it a problem appeared where all these very advanced tools are also very advanced to manage and what users actually need is the simplicity and they need one single interface we need they need to focus on their own thing and not on the tool itself and integrating these solutions and put like shifting them left towards the actual developer has changed how we tell our our story.
0: Okay, so CI/CD being integrated with the code hosting repository, that makes complete sense to me. What does a security product have to do with that?
1: So, how does a regular development delivery workflow look like? Developer commits some code, does some testing, right? That gets merged, gets deployed, and then it goes to a security department that verifies the changes, makes sure that everything is OK. And that means like we are now ready to release. And then they approve the rollout. They approve the rollout, correct. But the problem is you already packaged your software you already had spent a lot of cycles making sure that your code is uh, working. Now, if the security department comes back and says, you need to redo this, you need to repeat the same process again. If you move your security scanning all the way back to developer and give him immediate reaction to whatever they have uh, done with their code, they can fix it right away. They don't have to repeat the process. So you give not only the developer but you also give the security department and all of people involved in that process more confidence that in vast majority of the cases you have covered what is necessary for your software to be delivered is obviously in some cases you still need security to do, to approve certain changes but now they're focusing on uh, high level risk versus you didn't update your library in time for example which right. is like almost like a false positive in most cases so by shifting that all the way back to developer you allow them to shorten the cycle they don't duplicate the the process
0: that security product is that just a scan using the publicly available vulnerability database, or are you guys doing your own security research and finding your own vulnerabilities?
1: So for now, this is all using public accessible data. As far as I know, we are developing our own stuff, and we are also now considering moving certain security scanning items uh, down a tier, meaning instead of having it as part of uh, Enterprise Edition only, having it as Community Edition.
0: You know, I just talked to Sneak. They actually have a thing where you can license their vulnerability database. Right. That might be useful for you guys. Right.
1: That might be useful, yes.
0: The GitLab product development process. So, I guess you had this, this uh, sort of <laughs> some <laughs> random engineer in the company already... Pro- Presumably not random. I should interview whoever this was at one po- at some point. Whoever said we're going to bundle in CI/CD and ended up taking your company to market uh, in a really powerful way. That was one like product expansion thing, and then this security product expansion thing happened at some point, and then you got uh, Multano, which, as far as I know, was kind of a CID top down. You know, yeah. woke up one day and said we're going after data engineering. This is a very curious set of product expansions. Is there a standardized process by which new GitLab products get developed, or is it just kind of opportunistic?
1: So, our mission is everyone can contribute. That means if you have a brilliant idea, it doesn't really matter which uh, part of the company you come from. Your idea does count. You can propose it whichever way you want, but the only way we actually develop product is using our own product. So the only thing you need to do is propose your idea in our public issue tracker, by the way. So that means that whoever has had what they think is an interesting idea, can propose it and they can explain the benefit of us doing that that gets exposed in various like channels or various ways it gets exposed like you you can like publish your own thing inside of our uh, internal company agenda as a hey i think i have an interesting idea and more often than not uh, people take in they try to like, poke holes in the idea. They try to like, understand the value of it. And the everyone can contribute uh, mantra that we are using doesn't only count as create an issue. You can also develop it right then and there during the company time it doesn't matter you can do a poc to explain like what kind of benefit this brings we had that thing for a lot of our features like package features that we currently have the container registry came the same way someone said like hey there is a public you know open source project that does this how amazing would it be if we within our ci where we already build our code store those images right away And they built a quick POC, and that POC blew our mind. We were like, this is amazing, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. let's do it. POC then gets expanded, merged, and uh, we continue iterating on on those changes. So there is no real structured way you need to submit three copies of this. (laughs) And that you uh, propose your idea, and if you're interested in expanding it, you can continue doing it yourself and bring in others to help. Is GitLab one big Rails app? couple of years ago, yes, I would say that. But uh, no longer. We have a couple of satellite repositories that are communicating with our main Rails app through the API. So we kind of observe the bottlenecks That the application has, specifically at scale on GitLab.com, where we have like millions of users. And as we observe bottlenecks, we we try to improve the situation, obviously, like resolve uh, optimizing the the queries and whatever. But then at a certain point, you can only optimize so much. Like Ruby has its own advantages and disadvantages, and we extract that into a faster environment. So for example, our Now, common interface for dealing with Git storage, a project called Gitaly, is completely written in Go. So every time you query for anything on on Git data, it goes from the Rails app back to the Golang library uh, that serves your request. And we are structuring our application that way that as soon as we reach a certain bottleneck, we expand it into a separate service.
0: So but broadly speaking, GitLab is it's, it's like a big monolith, and there's some adjacent functionality. Right. Is there a broader lesson we can take from this in this, uh, you know, microservices frenzy that we are living through? Or is GitLab an exception?
1: I don't believe GitLab is an exception. Again, personal opinion is that you are competing with other projects on on your market. So do you want to go and follow a certain philosophy, like microservice all the way that complicates your development workflow? You might do a completely perfect microservice-oriented app, right? Like completely cloud-native app that will be overtaken by a monolith just because they can develop faster that what you actually need to care about is the performance of your app, how quickly can you resolve the problems as you see the performance uh, bottlenecks, and how quickly can you deliver value to your users and your customers. So I think we are doing that actually really well. Obviously, there is always performance issues. Like as soon as you have some codes, that's performance issue right away. But the fact that we tapped into uh, Ruby on Rails engineering pool to develop quickly, and then we are now tapping into a Golang engineering pool to increase performance, to improve our app uh, further, just kind of shows, to me at least, that you should be focused on resolving a problem rather than over-optimizing your solution. So could have we chosen a different language to start with? Probably. Would it be better? Maybe, but for us, the fact that we started at that time Ruby on Rails and now we are expanding into other languages has been very beneficial for us. That tight coupling between services versioning wise has actually helped us ensure that we can control things much quicker. That is different for a SaaS, obviously, though. We ship our software, so that is definitely different than if you have a SaaS. If we were primarily and only... SaaS company, I think I would be telling you a different story here.
0: Assuming some varying levels of experience in our audience, can you define the difference between the way that GitLab is deployed and served and the way that a SaaS product, maybe Zendesk or Stripe or something, some, some, some SaaS product, what's the difference?
1: So I think the biggest difference for us is that we need to ensure that our customers who are using GitLab don't have to spend time understanding how GitLab internally works. They need to understand how GitLab is used. So if we take our whole application and give it to our customer and say, well, now you need to update this micro or this like part of the service. Oh, you're running version 1.1 but you actually need to run version 1.4. You kind of occupy them with uh, busy work, basically the busy work of I need to maintain your tool. The way we are doing it, and I honestly believe successfully, is we are taking away that complexity for from our self-managed customer, and we are telling them, get this big monolithic package has everything that you need. Don't worry about the versions. We are taking care of making sure that the versions of the libraries we are using are compatible and they're functional. You just need to make sure that you stay on top of our product development. So don't lag behind too much. Even if you do lag behind too much, don't lag behind more than a year. So we made that process extremely simple. And with making that process simple, we get our customers to to have like the latest features as we development, like basically getting them hyped up to follow our, our path and follow our vision. When we, if we were to do that in a, in a SaaS, no one would actually care how it goes. They would only care how it performs and what kind of interface they have. So what we are actually doing is offering that SaaS story of, I don't really care how it works in the background. Right to our self-managed customers. And that has a lot of value.
0: So it's ironic because, if I understand correctly, because a lot of the GitLab customer base is deploying GitLab Mm on-premises, you want to give them a monolith because the monolith is easier for them to deploy, which is (laughs) very similar to if I am consuming a SaaS product, I just want to consume the API, and I want it to be as smooth an experience as possible. And the way that a smooth API-based SaaS experience is made uh, smooth and, and highly possible is probably through uh, decoupled microservices architecture. Right. Correct. Pretty ironic.
1: <laughs> yeah, right.
0: That said, so you have this thick basically monolithic thing that you're deploying to customers, you're delivering to customers. I shouldn't say deploying, you're you're giving it to customers. You're in charge of the creation and the distribution of updates to GitLab, right? That's a not anymore, actually. That was today.
1: my pro- uh, job up until January this year. Yeah. What do you do now? So I'm now responsible for our SaaS offering. So, bah, okay. <laughs> my responsibility now is to take whatever my former team is building and ensuring that that is easily deployable on a SaaS offering. Mm the size of GitLab.com. So the delivery team that I'm leading is responsible for release management, so making sure that those packages actually go out in time for customers and so on, but also for our Kubernetes migration. So GitLab.com is now running partially on Kubernetes. And this is because GitLab.com is really, really big, and we need to ensure that we can scale it further. And I also have another team called scalability, which is responsible for, you remember those bottlenecks I was telling you about? So we are observing those bottlenecks on gitlab.com scale. We have our our SLAs and SLOs that we are following and recognizing those bottlenecks as early as possible so that our customers, self-managed customers, never even get to them. Nice dog food. Exactly.
0: So how does the experience of, actually, let me understand the full, life cycle here. So it sounds like the team that you used to be in charge of the distribution and delivery release management team for the on prem product, that product feeds into so they are basically earlier in the life cycle, than where you sit now, which is the delivery of that product as a SaaS offering.
1: So a story is a tiny bit more complex than that. Okay. But yes, that is the, the basic uh, concept. So the distribution team is responsible for building those packages, as in they need to ensure that whatever we are packaging at that moment in time is is ready. What my current team is doing is making sure that we, we are deciding on that timing. We are deciding on when are we going to release uh, to our customers. So we are both the users and the... Uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but we are both the users and controllers of how our software leaves our company. So once we decide that things need to go out, we use the packages and and Helm charts that the distribution team uh, produces. We deploy them all automatically, obviously, to to various uh, environments. And uh, once we are sufficiently satisfied that everything is OK, we vet and say, like, yeah, this is ready to go uh, to, to public.
0: You mentioned Helm charts there. You were largely responsible or played a big role in the move to Kubernetes. Right. Tell me about how GitLab looked before and after the migration to Kubernetes. And I want to I understand what value
1: you get from being on Kubernetes. So we, at some point in time, we had... I don't even know how many machines, 200, 300 VMs, which had uh, GitLab deployed on them. So GitLab monolithic package. This is GitLab.com, the SaaS? For GitLab.com, specifically, yes. That meant that every time we hit a certain bottleneck, so I don't know, for example, Microsoft buys GitHub. Everyone goes to migrate to uh, GitLab.com. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now oh, yeah. you have SREs frantically booting up VMs, uh-huh. t- terraforming stuff, and installing things, and getting them uh, oh, so online. this is a true story? This was before? This is true story. Right, this right. was like two years ago, I think, 2019? Yeah, two years ago. As soon as that news hit, hit the press, all SREs came online to start booting up new VMs, and that is if you consider it now in two thousand nineteen, that is a kind of bit silly, given that right. you have a platform that does that for you automatically, right? Yeah. What we did over the the course of these past two years, basically, is um, we developed those Helm charts that allow us to now like, deploy into Kubernetes. We containerize parts of the application, well, all of the application, but in in uh, different ways, and now another competitor can be bought and we can scale that demand automatically, right? Like it's, uh, (laughs) it doesn't really matter. Who else is there? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So the difference for us now is that we can actually focus on the application itself rather than what I just said, like, again, the background, the infrastructure, like making sure that we can actually continue scaling with further demand quicker than we used to be able to.
0: You and I had a conversation at some past (laughs) KubeCon. I can't remember which one. Uh, I can't remember when it was. (laughs) Time is fading. The conversation essentially centered around the optimal amount of empathy that an engineering manager should have for an engineer, particularly in, I think we were mostly talking in the context of remote. and. I took the opinion that basically engineering managers should lay out strict requirements for an engineer, and the engineer should go ahead and implement those things, and if they can't implement them or they hit bottlenecks, they should communicate very clearly back to the engineering manager. There should be a very clear, unemotional base level of interaction between those two people, and beyond that... Like, yeah, they should form a friendship. They should be friendly. They should develop water cooler conversation and so on. But basically, it should be... It, the backbone of the relationship should be cold, unemotional, and productive. And I'm not sure how strongly I even, I even believe in that, but I kind of wanted to just test you a little bit and have a good conversation. You took a fairly oppositional approach. You've, you, you were more on the side of uh, high empathy... Tell me what you think I'm wrong about in that perspective.
1: I don't necessarily think that you're wrong about some uh, something. Like some people ha- need that approach, the approach that you just said. My experience is that ma- majority of the people I worked with react better with uh, when they are treated with some empathy, with some understanding, and they actually overdeliver in majority of the cases because they know that they can. Un- like if the time becomes hard they know they can count on you to understand them so i'm of opinion that i would rather cut some slack to to, to my engineers that if they miss the deadline we can sit down and communicate why they missed the deadline as long as they i don't know if i can say say uh, swear words here as long as they don't sell me bull like don't lie to me and everything will be fine. If you didn't feel like working that day, just tell me you didn't feel like working that day. I also have those days. I would rather play GTA than work sometimes, (laughs) you know? But don't tell me like, yeah, well, this was too much of a problem, too hard. Like, I'm an engineer as well. I know how hard problems are. Another thing that I also realize, if you give some space to people, not too loose, but some space to people, they will most good engineers will most of the time find better solutions than you can imagine yourself. Mm-hmm. And I prefer hiring smarter people than I am because I know how I can work with them and I know how I can get much, much more out of them uh, than I can uh, get out of myself. So by sharing a tiny bit more empathy and spending a tiny bit more effort in, in making people uh, appreciated for what they do, in my opinion, I get like way, way better results.
0: But by the way, I don't think what I was advocating in that conversation was necessarily a lack of empathy. I was more saying, look, remote management, totally new field. In my experience, there is so much fluff. And uh, my one other full time coworker, Erica, is going to listen to this and maybe she'll have her own opinion. You know, we add fluff to our daily conversations. She works in Seattle. I work in uh, San Francisco. And we have our emojis and our, you know, hello, how are you doings, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, a lot of it is fluff. And I think over time, we've actually gotten less and less fluffy as we have gotten more and more unspoken amount of trust. It's become more and more rudimentary conversation which is more productive because fluff is noise. You know, you'd rather have a high bandwidth, low word count conversation. So if that's the case and you have an established company like GitLab, why not say that from day one? Like, look, empathy is unspoken. Like GitLab principle number 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Empathy is unspoken. Can I make a pull request in this podcast for that to be one of your principles? You can absolutely always
1: submit a merge request. <laughs> absolutely. Even if you don't work for GitLab. So I think we're mixing mixing lines here. I don't believe in fluff. That's also what I told you uh, a bit earlier. Don't lie to me. Like Be direct. Tell me what you need and I'll help you out and I'll tell you what I need. So that... I, in my opinion, doesn't have anything to do with empathy. I can do. I can be direct while still being em- empathetic to the person. I can tell them like, "Hey, this needs to be done today." I understand that you have this, this, and this, but how can we work this out uh, to mutual agreement? Right? I don't have to go and say. Uh, Uh, have you seen the latest episode or whatever? And like start by like giving the, that type of fluff, right? Like that type of inefficient conversation. So I always have efficient conversations with my team members. Everyone knows where they're standing with me. And when I get upset, this is the difference, difference, right? Like I don't yell at them. I just say, I'm disappointed in this. Directly state how I feel. And I don't have to like go around and say, well, you know how you made me feel? No, well... No, like you should have done your job or I should have done my job. You can still have a clear cut conversation without adding that uh, fluff that you're mentioning, right? So I think we are basically in agreement. Mm -hmm. We are just using a different terminology. I have empathy when I work with my folks, but I also Mm -hmm. set clear expectations. Mm -hmm. And whether you want to work five hours, one hour, three hours, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Whether you are in Bahamas that day, I actually don't care, right? I care as a human being, as someone out of the office, right? Like watercolor talk you mentioned. But if we agree that you're going to deliver this thing until tomorrow, whether you spend four days not doing anything and then um, hammers everything uh, uh, like under the deadline, or you're going to like do two hours a day and get it done, more the power to you. I have an example to share there where I got my whole team in one location. We call that fast booth when you create a new team, get them all in one location to get to know each other and work on a specific problem, right? This is exactly where I learned how different my team members are. And with some of them, I worked for years. One guy spent two hours reading stuff on his laptop I wouldn't say Facebook, but hacker news and God knows what, and he would be like chatting and like not even doing the thing that we said that he needs to do. But then at some point he just takes the wrap of his laptop and puts his headphones on and spends two hours of the most productive work I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Yeah. And delivers that thing under the deadline. So you know more the power to him right. other people need 6 hours to get totally. achieve the same result
0: what have you changed your mind about in the purview of remote work what did you do when you started doing remote team management around 2016 i think that you now do differently what have you changed your mind about
1: I think I spent too much time at the beginning uh, of the remote work when I built a team in, now I call it micromanaging, then I called it project managing. Making sure that uh, people committed their code, pushed their code, made their code visible so that I can check it out and understand where they are. Obviously, some of that comes with seniority of the the people that you have working for you, but now I'm more of an opinion deadlines, expectations clear expectations clear agreement are more important than me seeing that code right the the very moment you wrote it like i just like this point in time i just only care that if we agree that this is doable in this time you are delivering that if you're not if you notice that something is going off your communication style needs to be direct and like you need to raise urgency right away excuses like oh, well, this took more time because I didn't anticipate X, Y, and Z. That do not matter to me if you didn't raise it up or expose it in some way that is kind of the opposite of what i experienced in in the offices where i always had a feeling that my boss was looking over my shoulder to ensure that i deliver some results now it's the worst feeling in the world uh, someone looking over your shorth- shoulder so now i actually have conversations on wh- why did you miss the deadline where did we miss our mark on estimating these things how can we ensure that this never ever happens again and then Again, like I said, if you want to be in Bahamas for a week, be there. I don't mind. Just deliver it as we agreed uh, on that. I think that was the biggest, biggest switch for me. Now I actually look at code as, well, out of hobby basically, right? Like when my engineers deliver something, I'm curious. I want to see like whether I could have figured out a more optimal solution. And sometimes I offer the, the more optimal solution. But when they did it, that's no longer my issue. GitLab
0: has these set of unique traits, these set of unique engineering practices and cultural practices. It's a remote work organization. Sid is a very distinctive CEO. And I think when you have a company that is that much of a maverick, in some ways, people are waiting for something to go wrong with the company and there are some people who are almost rooting against it they want the norm Mm. of engineering and business to remain the same for whatever reason so there were a couple of recent events around GitLab that cast the company in a negative light Mm. there was some quote-unquote controversy Mm. I didn't follow any of it that closely, but maybe you could give me your perspective from the inside. Mm -hmm. How did that controversy feel? What were the controversial events? And what was
1: the outcome? So we had a couple of events. One was the telemetry challenge, I can call it. The other one was data residency issue, meaning our proposed moratorium on hiring from certain countries. Both of those came... I don't know how to explain. It. Like, it, it is interesting because all of those items were public for months. They were out there for anyone to pick it up while things were being discussed, including the telemetry update. What was the telemetry update? Telemetry update, That is. this is where we made a mistake. We sent the email with an advanced, not warning, but advanced information that we are planning to track behaviors on GitLab.com. So our SaaS offering. Due to unfortunate set of events, the email that was sent out was not really super clear what that actually means for our self-managed customers. So in certain ways, you can interpret it as all of GitLab is going to now be tracked. And the other one, uh, the data residency issue, certain customers of GitLab.com have a valid request to know who has access to their data. And due to various reasons, there was a requirement that any Russian resident and Chinese resident is is reported as having access to uh, their data. Yeah. I mean, that, I honestly think that's a valid valid question. Now, what we did about that, that's a different story. So we had a discussion in a public issue between the, the highest level uh, executives on how Can this be done? And what are the reasons for this being done? Unfortunately, whether people did not understand how our company works, it doesn't really matter because they understood our discussion as final, like a thing being done, as in GitLab decided to do this, which is not how we actually operate. We operate in public and until we find a good solution, we continue discussing it, right? I think what was an unfortunate outcome at that moment in time while it was happening is that we are now a big company we also have a lot of people inside of the company who are very opinionated about some of these situations right so when news hit hacker hacker news instead of assuming positive intent which is one of our uh, part of our values we had a situation where some lack of trust was exposed uh, towards uh, the decision makers so What I think was brilliant was the result or rather how we handled what was happening at that time. So this is where I really love working for this company. We recognized the mistake. We recognized immediately that as soon as this went out and people start raising their concerns about it, we understood where we made our mistake and we sent out a follow-up saying, you're right, we made a mistake. We didn't understand that you can... We were too set on what we understood was the problem, and we didn't understand the optics of how this looks to someone who is outside of this whole story. That's one thing. And another thing I think that was really interesting was how internally all of that looked. The fact that we have so many people in company that care about the company and the mission of the company is is really rewarding because everyone started offering solutions. Hey, we can do this, we can try this way, right? Like, don't forget about the open source, like, we need to communicate this. With the open sur- the rest of the open source community. How are we gonna do that? Everyone kind of rallied around. Here are the solutions to the problems we created for ourselves. And actually, this morning we had a, a big meeting. Hey, it's not a meeting, okay. but. I was a moderator together with a couple of other colleagues in a conversation about how do we align our decisions with our values, where equal participants were the executives, so e members, and any team member that wanted to participate in this discussion. So what actually happened was people asked really probing questions and our executives laid out, this is the the thing that we are thinking about right now and these are the reasons why we are doing that this is a business requirement we have this is what board said for us and this is how this affects our numbers so whether that was a good decision or not now hindsight right we know some of these items could have handled been handled better but what was important in this whole conversation was that People that contributed now understood the the full background of the situation. And we also found new allies of communication with, well, not only executives, but like both sides, like how are we going to raise up these certain things in the future in a more constructive way and again, assume positive intent. So I'm actually excited to see that there is a second side to this uh, controversy, and that was humans behind it actually behaved like humans, like decent people, where they actually started discussing things and understanding the background from both sides. Not only executives sharing with team members, but team members sharing with executives.
0: It's such a commentary on the modern problems of internet communication, where people do not assume good intent. No. In in modern internet communication, people assume the worst intent. And there are many people who will They would rather have a subset of the available information that lets them assume bad intent than consume the sufficient quantity of information to understand the full story when the full story will reveal a more balanced and humane and positive intent. So it's just funny, you know, you hear plenty of discussions around social media, public discourse in social media and Facebook or Twitter or news commentary or Hacker News or Reddit or whatever. It's just funny kind of seeing this also be true for a company that operates in the open, almost the the GitLab social network or the GitLab open operating doctrine. So I'm sure we could talk about that a lot more, but we're almost out of time. Maybe that I mean, that could be its own show. Maybe I can get Sid to come back on. (laughs) Uh, We're at KubeCon.
1: Are you going to reInvent? No. no, I am not. You're not going to reInvent. Have you been before? No, I have not. you never been, okay. <laughs> it's in Las Vegas, and <laughs> <Not> <laughs> Las Vegas a, is tricky. Not a Vegas <laughs> fan? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's tricky. Why is this conference relevant to you? I think one of the most, like the biggest reason why this is relevant to us is... We do offer tools that enable folks to either deploy to Kubernetes or work with Kubernetes uh, in some shape or form. And personally, as well for me as a, as a leader of the team that is handling uh, GitLab.com for, on Kubernetes, learning the new practices or the best practices or whatever this community brings, the community that is growing so fast that it is it is not believable, honestly. It is really important to stay on top of those trends because there are a lot of things that are still not resolved in, in the platforms, right? Like state is still a tricky subject. We don't have state in Kubernetes workflows, right? How you deploy to Kubernetes is also like an interesting topic that I've followed a lot of uh, topics this time around where a lot of folks are having the same problem. And interestingly enough, they're creating their own tools to to create the same workflow. And I'm here to tell them that. Yeah, GitLab offers already all of that uh, for them, so they don't have to. But it is really, really important to stay on top of those trends because the the cost of the infrastructure, the cost of people uh, handling that infrastructure is continuing to rise, right? Like with the demand of, of the services that you have to offer. So, any way you can make things easier and more cost efficient for yourself will give you the competitive advantage.
0: Verin, thanks for coming on the show. It'd be a pleasure to have you back anytime. Always.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you.